0: This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app.
1: I, I was invited once to the Browning dance by this very nice young man, didn't know him at all, and he invited me to the class dance. And I think I was 11, and the most terrible thing happened (laughs) because those were the days of the twist. And so we were twisting and twisting, and I went all the way down on the floor and then kind of went all the way back, and then I couldn't get up. (laughs) George had to lift me up. Anyway, I didn't do that again, but I I don't think anyone asked me out to a dance after that for about three years.
0: Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked, a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is your hometown. One of my first memories of watching Sigourney Weaver act was in Aliens, the second film in the franchise series that made the character she played, Ellen Ripley, one of the most iconic badass heroines in movie history. I'll never forget the scene at the climax of the story, when she appeared inside a tall, yellow loader. I don't know, it looked sort of like a forklift type thing. and She was operating its arms and legs to stomp out and take a mighty swing at the most terrifying, otherworldly, jawzy, salivating monster I'd ever seen. At that moment, the whole theater erupted as Ripley, in a show of superhuman force, ejected the alien queen out into space. From then on, whenever I've seen her on screen, in whatever film, from Ghostbusters to Gorillas in the Mist to Avatar, I think of Sigourney Weaver instinctually as that tough, no-nonsense, athletically graceful screen heroine that she is known for far and wide. But interestingly, that's not how she saw herself as a girl growing up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. As you just heard her recall, she wasn't exactly the model of agility out on the dance floor. Now, it's fun to tell that story in hindsight, but couldn't have been easy to be down that floor in real time. Something I know that the teenager inside of all of us can relate to deep down inside. In Sigourney's case, though, she wasn't just growing up in any old place or time in New York. Her English mother, Liz, was a former actress. And her father, Pat Weaver, was the president of NBC. Yes, that NBC. So from a very young age, she was surrounded by the capital P pioneers of television. And unlike her attempt at the twist, her parents were paragons of elegance and grace especially under pressure, including one night when they found themselves the guests of honor in a special version of the classic television show, This Is Your Life.
1: This is your life, an American television tradition.
0: But instead of the usual host, it was the comedian Jackie Gleason of Honeymooners fame doing the honors.
1: Jackie Gleason for whatever reason, they did. A, this is your life with my father and mother, and it was in the NBC apartment. My mother, they were the
0: they were the the objects
1: of it, and there was your parents. Yes, were the, they were the objects. This is were, their lives. Yes, this is their okay. lives, and okay. it was Jackie Gleason chain smoking. My, my mother had gotten very beautiful in this beautiful dress, and they were walking Jackie around and talking about stuff and as they went around a corner my mother felt her dress the zipper gave and it completely came open in the back and because it was live although they did record it my father suavely went behind her back and kept her her dress closed for like the next hour as they moved around the apartment always behind her so that she cuz she couldn't go excuse me i've got a change my dress. So I just, (laughs) I think it's so funny. That's That's show business. That's show business, man.
0: And her parents did it with easy grace and were very, very good at it. And she would join their business later on, on her own terms, and in a very different way. But at this point, Sigourney was just a little girl, and all that was in the future. At the time of that party, she was just one of the Weaver's two children, growing up on the Upper East Side, their own particular window onto her hometown.
1: My first memory is of sort of hearing that bus noise as it turns a corner endlessly and watching the pattern of the light across the ceiling. That's sort of the first thing I remember, (laughs) and I feel like it it just sort of formed me as a New Yorker. Now when I hear city noise, especially bus noise, I go, ah, you know. (laughs) So we lived 64th Street. Then my father was made president of NBC. And, uh, you know, he he put the Today Show on the air, the, the Tonight Show later on. And so I think that uh, my mother uh, found this apartment that then became the president's apartment uh, on Fifth Avenue, which was very big and sunny. And then my father... Wanted to move on. And um, and so suddenly, and this became a, rather, a a weird trait of my parents. They moved us without telling us we were leaving the other place. Because they didn't want us to, you know, not want to go or make some sort of scene. So, you know, I'd come home from school to a different apartment where every the furniture was still all the same. But we were in a different place. So because my father was in the Navy, he wanted to live in view of some sort of body of water, so we moved to uh, 56th Street and Sutton Place. And it was a lovely apartment, you know, done to the nines. There was a golden gate for the entrance to the living room. The living room was not that big, so it was a little strange to have this big golden gate. And I used to try to swing on it when I was small, which, uh, you know, did not endear me to my mother... (laughs) And then I can't remember, I think there was another one in the 50s, a move to California, and then back, and then another. Uh, anyway, I couldn't really keep track of all the moves. And when you got to the new place, did your parents sort
0: of set your room up for you? Or did you, did you get to do that yourself? Did you get to kind of decorate your room and make your own? Or is it sort of, you arrived there and it's all already established?
1: Yeah. It was all established. I don't know how my mother did it. I don't know how she moved the furniture in one day and set it all up the next day, but that's what she did. It was sort of eerie, but um, also kind of, you know, to me it was so normal.
0: And so Sigourney, I'm trying to picture that scene being in school, um, I grew up sort of in one house, <laughs> so I don't really, I, I'm trying to be, imagine being in your shoes. So how did your parents arrange this, and how did you know where to go? Were you picked up and just dropped off at the new house? How, I, like, how did you get the message?
1: <laughs> I know. I mean, um, I think that that was what happened. On that those yeah. particular days, yeah. I I was brought to a different place. I guess we were, you know, my mother was English, so there was a lot of stuff to talk about that we didn't talk about. I think that that was, in a way, a good thing for me to know about. Stability, because my mother always put the furniture nicely. There was some sort of order. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it, I just thought was normal. I I do remember something very special about my father being president of NBC that um, I knew was terribly special. He had a gold card that could get you in Radio City Music Hall to see movies for free. And when we used that card, our member, I usually was all dressed up, I thought it was the most exciting thing in the whole world. I felt a little bad that we just got to go in without waiting in line, but um, it was so thrilling. It was probably the only thing that I thought made us really special. My father took me across a river, I always thought it was New Jersey, but it could easily have been the East River, to Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. Peter Pan being filmed for television with Mary Martin.
0: With Mary Martin, yeah,
1: wow. Amazing. Yeah, I was worried about being underwater because i thought the bridge or whatever it was the tunnel (laughs) maybe had just been (laughs) built and Mm -hmm. we were testing it but um no i got to meet miss martin and there's a picture of me i was so shy and i was like you (laughs) um and i i i think i got to meet cyril richard who was playing uh captain hook but i i did get really scared of the crocodile that was sort of moving around the set <laughs> with the clock going off in it and um, I thought it was a, such a wonderful world having a dad in show business, especially television in the early 50s, there was so much excitement around it. A lot of the people in that world, like you know, Jackie Gleason, Art Linkletter, who, you know, whoever they were, they were sort of the circle of friends at my Parents were in, and so and also a lot of people who just come over either right before the war or right after the war, and so it was a real cross section of people. What was interesting was that money was not considered uh important or worth talking about. You could have a little garret somewhere you know and and if, if you made it gay or it was what what you did with whatever it was, and I remember. People never really, I mean, of course, I was invisible. I wasn't at these parties. But I just remember it was very much about um, telling a funny story, making people laugh, always in Mm -hmm. the moment, dressing up just to come to each other's houses. People really went out. And it was all about sort of having fun, which I can understand after two wars. You know, business, I don't think, was considered that interesting, no one ever talked about what they did or their health or money or, you know, it was just sort of about were you a good conversationalist and mm. did you bring a kind of spirit? I mean, to me, Diane of Reeland is the perfect, you know, embodiment of all these things.
0: And what was it like for you as a kid to be introduced to or, or, or be around some of these figures that you mentioned? Did you feel embarrassed around them or <laughs> shy? You know, what was, what was yeah. it like for you to be around them?
1: I don't think they paid any attention to us. <laughs> I, we weren't really allowed to go to those parties. Okay. Uh, no one would have been interested in meeting us unless they were really stuck and no no other guests, and we were trotted out. I remember the man who wrote 2001 The Space Odyssey, Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke. He came to the house for a drink, and I remember he pulled out this magazine and showed it to my parents. At this point, I was like 11, and... Um, and they they all laughed, they thought it was so funny. So he put it back in his briefcase, didn't show it to me. So while they were jabbering, I sort of reached into his briefcase and I pulled out this magazine, which was my first first time I ever saw Playboy. And there was a big, you know, cartoon of some lady. I didn't really get the joke, um, but I, I think he was very embarrassed um, that uh, <laughs> that he had brought this in and the 11-year-old girl was looking at it.
0: What was it like to be a shy girl in their world? I mean that uh, given how social they were and what they were doing and the fact they they love to be out. And you mentioned before being shy. Yeah. How did you navigate that as a kid?
1: Um if you are five, ten and a half and you're eleven and you mm-hmm. you know, and you tower over everyone, I think that at that point I was feeling very self conscious and I probably was very quiet. I used to only wear olive green and black <laughs> and I always had my nose in a book, so you know, there were places at school. I was sort of a class clown, and you know, on my turf, um I wasn't shy, and the rest of it, you know i I can talk about it, but I wasn't really part of it. you know, mm-hmm. I knew how to be polite, and I was taught to curtsy and all that and um and uh there would usually be another kid to play with um and I read. I read constantly. I read, you know, with a, you know, like everyone with a flashlight in bed at night and um mm-hmm. I think that was a big a big deal for me. Just mm-hmm. uh, I'd lose myself in in books. I you know, I didn't feel like I didn't feel deserted because it was so normal back then. You know, mm-hmm. uh the parents had their life and the children had a different life. I didn't know enough to think, "Oh, it'd be nice to have you know, I could see that my parents on weekends, you know, if we went on a trip, I'd see them. So I wasn't like, I, I thought they were happy. You know, I was like, good. Um, <laughs> so I, there, there was no choice in it. Right. But it didn't feel personal to me.
0: So we've met Susie, a shy, bookish girl in the big city. The daughter of a dynamic duo who were part of that whirling scene of trailblazers in TV's first golden age. Not that they actually sat around watching TV at night. No, they were part of the post-World War II generation, squeezing everything they could out of life by dressing up and going out to clubs and parties in style. As Sigourney's story reminds us, the parenting style was very different back then. Baby boomer children weren't the center of the family schedule or universe. They were like moons in their own orbits, which made me wonder. Now that we have gotten a sense of our parents' New York, What was her version of going out to play?
1: (laughs) I I had a nurse for a long time who was German, and we used to go to Yorkville, which was just all these German restaurants and, and sort of beer parlors. But she also had a boyfriend in New Jersey. So she used to meet him. She used to take me to the Palisades Amusement Park and buy a whole slew of tickets for my favorite ride, which was Ride the Wild Mouse, which just sort of jerks you around for about five minutes. (laughs) I was thrilled, and then, so I'd have like eight or nine tickets for this. She'd go off and have a drink with her boyfriend, and I would just go on this ride again and again and again until, you know, like after five or six rides, I'd sort of crawl out and get sick, and... (laughs) You know, she'd find me sort of sitting on the edge of the ride, you know, outside the ride, like, ugh. But to me, it was worth it for those few mm-hmm. first rides. So,
0: did you, you, you didn't rat her out to your parents? You oh, thought, no.
1: You? no. No, I thought someone worse would come. <laughs> uh, in those days, the, the wife would mm-hmm. often just sort of be with the husband, if he had, you know, there was so much entertaining, and a lot of entertaining with these television jobs, so, yeah, I had to have a nurse, I, I, I've heard so many people say, oh, you poor thing, you grew up in the city, I'm like, are you crazy, um, (laughs) you know, you could, you could go to the, um, Natural History Museum, um, you could go to so, so many things, you could go to shows, you could go to, um, Uh, Rockefeller Center and go skating Um, uh, there were just nonstop things to do there was a a place called the women's exchange and I think it was in the 50s on Madison Mm, and it was a a building and in the on the first floor they had a a big kind of cafeteria and it was uh, I guess a little like Schraff's but it was very uniquely this place and it was all women sitting at all the tables, and um, that was the one place my mother took me to have lunch. Um, And there was something so exciting about being in a place that had all different women talking different languages, um, just there for each other. You know, you never saw any men. It was just all women, it was like women's land. And of course, I think growing up in the city gave me confidence, because I was used to roaming around these streets by myself a lot of the time, and going to school very young by myself, and, and, and also not to have the attention of parents very much. The city was your playground, the whole city.
0: Okay, so Sigourney says her version of being a kid in New York was roaming around the city like a playground. And on that playground, she learned to do a lot of things on her own. And as she said, life at that point seemed perfectly normal even Mary, as she played on her playground and her parents played on theirs. But when she got to her teenage years, her parents began to worry because she was a little hard to read, maybe distant. So, in their fumbling way, they tried to figure out what was going on. And when you were 13, I understand your parents sent you to a psychiatrist just to talk with them, and I, was, I guess because you had an uncommunicative personality was what I've, I've read. How did they... Tell you about that. How they break the news to you that we'd like you to go and visit so-and-so? Did you just get dropped off there one day, or did they come and visit you? Or how, did, how did they broach this subject with you?
1: It was the days where people were sort of becoming mad about psychiatry. It's true. I was uh, not happy when they wanted to do that. It's true that I, you know... I wasn't a very talkative kid. We didn't really have that kind of life. You can't expect a kid to just throw everything up at dinner, mm-hmm. what you did that day. So it was sort of this really weird compensation on their part to sort of try to find out how what I was feeling and what I was thinking. And all I ever did with that man who had this fa- family photo of this ideal family with this little girl with long Hair pulled back the beautiful bow and a little party dress on. He had that facing out. So any kid going to see him would look at that and go, oh, well, I feel like a, you know, a troll. Um, And all we did was play checkers and other games. Dare I say it, I didn't think he was a very good psychiatrist. He wasn't very personal. I went, had to go back and see him many years later for something because I was, I was going to um, transfer uh, to another college and my parents mm-hmm. wanted me to go back and see him. And what he said to me was um, you, I said, well, what did you learn about me? And he said I thought you really wanted to win. And I thought it was so funny because all we did was play checkers and stuff like that. So of course all I wanted to do was win. I mean, you're, you have a license? Yeah. So... You know, I guess it was just my parents realizing that, they'd, that we didn't have that kind of close dialogue through many of yeah. those years.
0: Around that same time, the dialogue in Sigourney's life would change locations altogether when she packed up and moved out of New York to attend the Ethel Walker School way up in Connecticut. Having run the competition of playing board games with a psychiatrist trying to solve her, how, I wondered, did this totally new environment of a private, all-girls boarding school changed her relationship to home.
1: When I first went away to school, I just cried nonstop for about three months and broke out in hives. And, Mm. you know, I used to come home and watch The Life of Riley and I Married Joan and all these sitcoms and Loretta Young telling a different story each time. Mm -hmm. So it was one thing being away from the family. I could deal with that because I was used to that. But being away from my shows, I couldn't bear it They made me laugh so hard, and I miss my shows. They were my friends. They were my companions.
0: This is a scene from I Married Joan. I could just picture Sigourney in front of the TV, watching it at home. Not with her parents, not with her brother, but alone and totally involved, like she was spending time with true friends. Here's TV Joan comforting a pal.
1: Honey, you've just got to go to sleep. Uh, Maybe I can help. Now, Now, just relax clear your mind, and picture a beautiful lazy river. You're floating down
0: the
1: river, way I'd rather be in a comedy sitcom than anything else I could think of. I've never done it, but to be part of a family like that and make Mm -hmm. people laugh, I think is probably Mm -hmm. the most joy you could have.
0: Who wouldn't want to see her do that? But now that she was moving into her teenage years, she was going to have to get herself out of this thicket of hives and homesickness without her favorite shows or any TV at all. But like TV Joan, she did have a bit of a funny bone, and soon she discovered how to use it as a lifeline.
1: Even at the girls' school, I was so dorky. You know, I'd win all these questionable, uh, you know, like um, freshman Fink and sophomore fairy and... um, these were sort of insults, but if you had a good sense of humor, you could make people laugh. so I got all those things wow. and um
0: I what had did that what does r- that what does that signify what is that I'm trying to think like, what what that I means. had
1: to run around with a broken wand and throw fairy dust at everyone in the school, uh which was just baby powder and you know what can you do but try to do it you know well. <laughs>
0: Your parents sent you to some of the most prestigious, you know, private schools in the city. Yeah. Breerly on East 83rd, 3rd, Chapin, Ch- which is on East End Avenue. And, you know, those are sort of storied places and, and you know, elite girls' schools. And I was going to ask you, what, what was the future your parents were preparing you for? You know, what were their expectations of you
1: um, in, in sending, to you, sending you to these places? They believed in education so strongly. Mm-hmm. And I think they did it the main reason would be that wherever I went, whatever I did, I would always be able to hold my own. It was a rare time. Um, Of course, those schools still exist, but to have that generation of women who had to really fight to get a good education, teaching you and believing in you and believing that you could do anything, um, was such a powerful motivator and made you feel that you you wanted to use that knowledge and these advantages and go out and that you should have no, no matter what situation you ended up in, that you would have your education as your sort of sword and shield. And um, so I think that that tradition of girls' education, which is so strong um, in 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 New York, and I, I don't know about other cities, but I imagine... Uh, i I'm, I'm i it made me kind of a believer in in same sex education because I feel like girls are leaders, and if there are all these boys around you know at a certain age they start to you know put on lipstick and concentrate on the boys and I didn't i first of all I would have i was such a such a wreck like this big tall spider. I certainly wasn't ready to go to a co-ed normal school. I needed to be in the oven for about five more <laughs> years <laughs> until I could catch up to my height. And so um, I, I thrived in that sort of strange conservatory of uh, weird orchid like uh, girl, you know, writers and readers. Oh, yeah. It was the right place for me. And I'm inc- that's the thing I'm most grateful for of anything in my life that I had. A, an education that not only was thorough, but that these women, you know, just f- force fed into us, you know, it was so important, it would make us equals in the world, it would, it would make us fighters, it would make us capable of, you know, feeling like there was nothing we couldn't do. Uh, that's the thing I'm most grateful for, uh, besides my husband and my daughter. And my career. But I mean, really, it's all based on on feeling that I was worth taking this much time with. And I hope, you know, someday every child has that experience of the teacher believing in them, saying, go for it, you have your own point of view, you know, stand up and speak it out. And um, there's nothing, nothing more important. You know, I actually think uh, when I went and went to school, there was a teacher, an English teacher, named Florence Hunt. She was extraordinary, and she, we had to read all the Thomas Hardy novels. For some reason, Mrs. Hunt, Ms. Hunt was very interested in what I had to say, and mm-hmm. I would go in, and I'd go, oh, Hamlet is so boring. But the, you know, the play should be about Claudius, and uh, yes. he's much more interesting. And she'd say, yes, yes. I said, I want to write a play about that. And she'd say, yes, go and do that. And um, it turned out that I was a good writer. It was something I loved to do and was very good at and felt completely thrilled by.
0: Before you had a formed dream of, I want to do this. Yeah. When you were in the <clears throat> room with the flashlight in your books...
1: Yes. You know, what were you reaching for? Well, besides John Lennon, um, I was probably... (laughs) I had massive... You know, I had huge crushes on Steve McQueen and, Mm -hmm. you know, that whole period. Um, But I think I wanted to be a writer very much. I thought there was nothing more wonderful than transporting someone to another world. And I kept that you know, through through college, I was an English major, and then, I, and then I, I thought, well, maybe I'll be a journalist because I don't think I have the talent to be a novelist. And then I suddenly applied to drama school and I thought, it's all the same, you see. As an actor, I go into this other world, I experience every part of it, and then basically I come out and tell you the story of what that is from a personal point of view. The way a journalist has to, they have to get inside the story and then they report it. So I think I was very fascinated by both getting lost in stories and by being able to come out and pass them on. Um. As I understand, um,
0: you made a discovery that changed your identity in certain ways. You went from Susan, which is your birth name, to Sigourney. it's sort of a, a, one of these interesting factoids about you that the name comes from The Great Gatsby. I can remember exactly where I was and the circumstances when I first read it. Um, you know, I was going into my senior year of high school. I had to read it that summer before classes started for AP Lit. Um, and I, of course I wanted to, you know, be prepared. And I can remember sitting outside in a lawn chair in our yard near our above ground pool and just falling, falling into that book and the language of it, and I think that I wanted to kind of just sit there a, a, a bit with you and to ask you about this because I think it's easy kind of to just to to breeze through it as an interesting factoid about you. Mm. But if you know that book, the name Sigourney is not a prominent name in the not book. Not at all. You have to really look for it, and it's a very—it's not even a character that we meet. It's a character that's referred to. Jordan Baker is this golf and tennis. Uh, you know, ath- athletic person that the narrator, Nick Carraway, is dating. And they kind of, she tells him at one of Gatsby's parties to look her up and look it together. And she says, look me up under Mrs. Sigourney Howard in the phone book I yeah. live with my aunt. So that's it. That's it. And I was thinking, okay, that's, you know, we, the world knows you Sigourney Weaver and that's sort of the point where you, the kind of the origin of that. And I wanted to ask you, Do you remember reading Gatsby for the first time and what impression it made on you, first of
1: all? Yeah. Let's start there. Well, I think I was actually about 13 or 14 because I know it was once I was away at school that that's where I looked at that word and it was an S and it was long and sort of curvy. And I thought, oh, I want to be that word. I don't want to be Sue. I'm too old for Susie. I'm going to be this, this, this word for a while. And I only did it really, I didn't think it would ever stick. I didn't feel like I changed my name. My parents mm-hmm. called me S in case I changed it to Sally or something. And I'm amazed that I'm still using that name today. But I, I know it's not uncommon for people to do that. Oh. And had you been on the lookout for a name when you read it? I don't or think it, so.
0: <laughs> so you I, weren't saying, I've got to find a good S name. You just were reading The Great Gatsby and this name. Yeah. And was it, was it the first time you read the book that it stuck out to you? Or was it like it many It was the readings? first time. It was the first time. Um, it's also a novel in which the main character changes his name. You know, yes. Gatsby is James Gats. Yes. It becomes Jay Gatsby. So there's sort of that riff on names, too, yeah. in it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, But it sounds like when you read it, it was just instantaneous. And it wasn't a statement. It was really more of a sound.
1: Yes. And actually, it was the way it looked on the page. There were Mm. a lot of, like, there's a curvy S, a curvy G, curvy O, R, E, and Y. I mean, I thought it was just nice to look at.
0: So did you keep it inside for a while? Did you think about it? Did you experiment with it?
1: When did you start using it and how I don't know how, how. I did it honestly yeah. I look back and I go wow mm-hmm. how did why did you do that and how did you do that what happened was I think I was at a dance because uh, sometimes the school had dances with boys schools and um, uh, this boy said what's your name I said my name is Weaver because that's what we called each other at this girls school we called each other by our last names and I thought God I've got to think of a better name than that <laughs> and so I really just chose it and then um, I I asked my friends to call me that I don't think it was easy I still have friends who call me Susie my parents as I said called me S the headmistress called my parents in New York and said I hope you're not going along with this absurd idea your daughter has of changing her name and my parents said that they said are you referring to our daughter sigourney Hmm. which was unexpectedly loyal of them and but in fact my father's name was sylvester he was called pat my mother's name was desiree she was called liz i was going to say
0: they also had experimented with names and that they that wasn't wasn't new to them
1: no i was a chip off the old block But I never even meant to use it when I came to New York to have a career. I said, my name is Susan. I just gave up. And the lady who I met for the first time, she said, oh, no, no, no. Don't use that. This other one is much more interesting. But of course, everyone who really knows me calls me Siggy. So you can't really escape your destiny. You know.
0: It's ironic, isn't it, that she grabbed that destiny from a corner of a corner of a corner of a famous American novel, yet today, when you hear the name Sigourney, you only think of one person. She owns the name by now, and that didn't happen by accident.
1: I didn't decide to become an actor for a long time, but mm-hmm. I did grow up knowing a lot about the business, that it had ups and downs, and that, you know, it had, took it. It involved all kinds of people. And uh, that it was all about the show, and then it was over, and then it was, you know. So Mm -hmm. I think I had that rhythm in in me, even though I came to acting pretty late. Yeah. I had no illusions. Let's put it that way. I remember coming back from drama school. My father had said, you should call this friend of mine, and maybe he can help you get a job, you know, at the network or something. (laughs) And I called this guy up, and he said, "Do yourself a favor, get a job at Bloomingdale's." And I said, "Excuse me, but I happen to have a degree from the Yale School of Drama." He said, "Yeah, Bloomingdale's is the, it, that's where you want to go." And, um, and so, for those
0: who don't know that reference, Corney, what what did he mean by that? For those
1: who don't know, oh, he reference. meant be a shop girl at, at Bloomingdale's. I'm sure they did not expect because I was so shy. I'm sure they did not expect me to go into show business, let alone be successful in it. Your mom, you mentioned, had had come
0: here from England uh, and was herself an actor on stage and screen um, and was in 39 Steps and and other, you know, uh, important early works. But she sort of gave that up when she got married and and sort of focused on, on
1: family, it sounds like. My father had such a demanding job that she very reluctantly, I think, gave it up. I think she also thought the business... In, in uh, Hollywood, the film business was, you know, she definitely had some moments, casting couch moments, where she was shocked to see heads of studios chasing uh, her around. And that really, I think she found that so degrading. And um, mm. so she she then put all her energy into other things. I didn't think it was a glamorous business. I think I was very lucky because my parents never talked about these things. My father was always on to the next thing. You know, after he left NBC, he tried to start a fourth network twice before he started the first cable business. And even there, he was put out of business illegally by the theater owners, and the Supreme Court in California overturned it 12 years later. But we used to get threatening calls at the house from hoods, uh, I remember answering the phone, (laughs) and I said, hello, and they said, yeah, so um, tell Mr. Weaver that his pretty wife may not be so pretty anymore, and I said, okay, I'll tell them, click. I thought my father was very brave. He believed so strongly that television was a rocket ship that should take us all over the world exposed us to all the arts, put us in the prime seats for the opening of the Bolshoi Ballet in Moscow. Mm. And uh, he he believed that till the day he died at 94. I could tell it was a bit rocky, but, you know, again, I think that that was, in a way, a good thing for me to know about, yeah, um, but not so sc- not scary. You know, I think that because my mother always put the furniture... Nicely there was some sort of order Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and the rest of it. I just thought was normal I thought the way people lived always in the same house forever Was kind of boring now mind (laughs) you I I live in a very boring way now Uh, I don't like to move and So I think that it is partially this desire to have in my crazy business. a lot of Stability some kind of order Mm -hmm. Um, I see that I've done that so in a way that that mimics what my you know my mother was very ordered you know because she was English and so I think that they you know I wouldn't trade them for anything my father would always say pick pick something commercial pick something commercial and so when I did read scripts I couldn't help there's part of me that thought yeah but will this I felt like my job wasn't finished until people were in the theater watching it, so I really wanted to make movies that people saw, because otherwise, in those days they wouldn't my, my communication wouldn't be complete mm-hmm. because they wouldn't have seen it, and if they right. didn 't see it when it came out, that was it, you know. so I, there's always been a kind of um, commercial part of my decision not not in a crass way it's just like oh yeah they can't ruin this in filming this has a good beginning middle and end shooting can't screw this up like Ghostbusters you know I just Mm -hmm. thought that's solid I don't care how big it is if the movie is not a story that is about more than those people in it then I don't want to be in it I don't care how big the role is I can usually make most things work, I can improve most things, mm-hmm. but in terms of what the movie's about, you can't change that. and you don't want to. It either is solid or it's not. Yeah. Um, and it's I think that's page. from being a an English major and uh, having a, a father who's a producer. but I think it was total shock to them that i that I made good, and um, I think my mother was especially thrown. she was like. <laughs> People would say to her, at a, you know, at, when a movie came out, if she came to the opening, she'd say, How about it? Your daughter is uh, this big success. And they'd say, What did you do? And she'd say, I don't know, vitamins? <laughs> <laughs>
0: look back at your life and those years we're talking about, what do you consider your jumping off point into adulthood? You know, where you felt like, okay, childhood has ended, and now I'm really, I'm on my own.
1: I'm an adult now. Um, I think uh, after I got out of drama school, where I hadn't really been encouraged that much by the people in charge, other people mm-hmm. encouraged me, but uh, and I had to start making a living, um, and I was willing, really, to do anything uh, in the theater, you know, understudy or whatever. I think it was once I I started to be able to make a living and enough for me to actually have my own apartment, which was when I was 30, um, I went, oh, I was so relieved. I yeah. never thought I'd be able to make a living. I, I Even in spite of what I said about the women teachers, I had a great deal of insecurity. And um, the fact that I was independent was electrifying to me. And um, I rented this apartment, which was more than I could afford, and I just made sure I could afford it. Um, Where
0: was it, Sourney? Where was the apartment? So
1: it was, it was on 72nd, it was across from the Dakota. Uh, oh, wow. I had shared shared apartment with a good friend of mine from Walker's in that building. <clears throat> and then, um, once I came back from Alien and really when I did eyewitness, I, I saw, I looked at another apartment because my friend had gotten married and, um, it looked right over sort of Central Park and the, and the, you know, indirectly, um, and I thought, well, I'll never be able to afford this, but' I'm, I'm going to go for it so that's where I was. In fact, the building was on top of this very, very smelly crab restaurant <laughs> where you used a hammer <laughs> and you a mallet and you could sort of kill the kill the uh, not kill them luckily, they were dead, but then you had to right. tear them apart. yeah so it was a stinky building um, <laughs> but um, I was so grateful I was grateful to be in New York yeah. and in the 70s, New York was not as safe as it seemed to me when I was small, um, and certainly Central Park wasn't. Um, and so I, I think I wanted to be, you know, the idea of living, when I think of people living in a house, I go, oh, but an apartment is so much more secure. Yes. <laughs> you know, no one can really see you. You know, you can yes. figure that out. and. um mm-hmm. And uh, no one's going to walk in from the street. I still feel that way. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more secure than an apartment. And um, so I I think I really needed that at the time because the business is already so up and down and uh, no promises and who knows what's going to happen. And so to have my own apartment, uh, even though I didn't have a couch for about two years, (laughs) <laughs> um, I had the apartment, and I was so grateful because it meant, it meant something. It meant I was yeah. moving in a direction.
0: And you mentioned John Lennon before having a crush on him. Were you aware that he was living at the Dakota at that time? And did you see him? Or did you see John and Yoko? And were yeah. you there when he's, he was killed? Or what? I'm just thinking the yeah. timing lines up, it seems.
1: No, I know. I never saw—I might have seen him go into the building with Yoko once. Um... I did hear the shots. I was reading a Chris Durang play, I think it was Beyond Therapy, and I heard the shots and I went, I mean, to me, the only the only way someone could get shot was like the mafia driving by. And I thought, oh, God, some poor person has been killed. And then I thought, no, it's just a truck. And then in the middle of the night, my boyfriend came into the apartment and woke me up and told me what had happened. and. Outside, you could hear people singing on the street. All, all we are saying is give peace a chance. And they sang for at least three days. And I, I still think it was one of the greatest losses. Um, oh, yeah.
0: I remember it distinctly, too, as a kid. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And this is someone that you adored. So yeah. did, you, did you venture down into that crowd, or did you stay in where you were?
1: No, I went down, and it really stood out as a bit of evil, you know, and, um, and, uh, and so shocking, so yeah. shocking.
0: And, and thinking about your career, Sigourney, it's, it's so extraordinary, but, and there's so many things we could focus on, but one thing I wanted to talk to you about is you have been in, in the course of your career, so many iconic New York movies. Yeah. You know, you had a brief, brief uh, on-screen role in Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think of, Ghostbusters, you mentioned, and Working Girl, and The Guys, which I love. And, you you know, thinking about acting in in movies that are set in New York and that are part of the New York landscape, how did researching different parts that are set in the city open new windows to you onto Mm. the city Mm. in the course of your career?
1: Underneath what I think New York gives you, regardless of what way of life you come from. You have this sort of, uh, this much New York terra firma inside you, and everything can grow in that soil, Mm -hmm. which is a very vivacious, sort of universal feeling soil. I I led a very uh, uh, distinctly privileged life, but I still felt part of New York. And if you ask me today what is the most important thing about myself, I would still say I'm a New Yorker. I just think it's the greatest place in the world.
0: And one of the beautiful things to think about about your contributions to it and to our imagination of New York, too, is that we were just talking about something that was very tragic and sad about the city, which is the murder of John Lennon. But not that long after that, I mean, by 84, we have Ghostbusters. And as a kid, that was, you know, I was obsessed with it. And I was thinking that so much of the movie takes place around Central Park and Lincoln Center, and so it sort of lays onto that sad landscape we just described near the Dakota and you are part of it.
1: Well, I think, I, I think Ivan Reitman did such a brilliant job because we spent the first three weeks in New York. It is really a love letter to New York.
0: When in your movements around the city uh, are you most conscious of the little girl that we started out talking about at the beginning of our interview? When are you most aware of her in New York?
1: That's a good question. I think it's Every time I go on Madison Avenue, which is not very often, but I I guess because that was the first place we lived, um, I I feel a a difference uh, that can only come from, like, my father was an atheist, but he used to take me to Sunday school on Park Avenue, drop me off, then he'd come back and pick me up. And we would go to Madison, we'd walk uptown, and we would go to this small very old-fashioned, I guess, candy store, because they didn't sell wrapped candy. You had to pick out what you wanted from a jar, and we would get butterscotch and hard licorice, Mm. and then we would walk home. And to me, Madison was just sort of like this, you know, boardwalk of wonders, Uh, so many small stores and not these big chains and stuff. That, to me, is the heart of the city. And thinking about that
0: that little girl and just staying on that, that theme, how have you drawn on her? The Susie that we've talked about. Yeah. You know, how have you drawn on her in your work? You know, because I think one of the most interesting things when one, uh, a, a, you know, looks at your life and, and reads about you and, and, and talks to you, is the fact that, you know, your most iconic role, right? If you had to pick one, is Ellen Ripley. It's it's yeah. Alien and the Alien series, and it's such a powerful part. And you know, I think you know, you're, it's on all the you know, all-time lists of heroines and heroes and most badass characters, right? And I know you've spoken before about how different she is uh, from you, but I think given all that you said about feeling like a weirdo and sort of the way that you kind of had to catch up to your body when you were growing up, there was also something very brave about your choice Hmm. to fight through the insecurity and become an actor. And I was just thinking it's one of the last things you said your parents thought you would do, given how shy you were. So how do it, it seems like on, on the surface people say oh she's acting cuz it's such a it's such a stretch from who she is ripley mm-hmm. but i'm wondering are you able to 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 access that when you have to in, inhabit the skin of someone yeah. like her
1: it's a really interesting question um i i actually based ripley on a girl i went to walkers with who Who's very no nonsense, the complete opposite of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, I think that I'm not unusual in the sense of being a girl growing up in New York. You know, a big girl, self-conscious girl. But I think that a lot of New Yorkers have a kind of. It's almost like they have a, a steel running through their spine. There's a kind of uh, yeah, you know, kind of uh, really your feet are on the ground in New York and the street is yours, and you run around like a little, you know, urchin, very young, at least when my time and uh, my daughter did too, but a little older. Um, but you grow up like, you know, a brave kid. Um, because the city is yours doesn't really belong to these grown-ups and um, you discover all kinds of things in your city um, and you are kind of you have an ownership with all these other people and I think that really gives us a kind of um, slender thread of steel Mm
0: -hmm.
1: uh, from childhood that uh, means you don't give up Um, and also thinking
0: about the, the the kind of the arc that we've talked about which is going from a little kid who you're sort of slightly invisible, right, because of the world that you described to your parents in and you're kind of like observing, but you're not really in it. And then you have teachers, uh, Well, you, you, have, you have the psychiatrist who's trying to get inside of you to report back. Then you have the teacher, Miss Hunt, who it sounds like is one of the first people that really saw you and paid attention and wanted to hear what you had to say. Yeah. Um, but you also described sort of the, the, the social side of things, which is you, you felt like a weirdo and awkward in your body. But eventually you choose a path that puts you in, 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 a, in, in many situations where an entire set of people, a crew, is, is, is fixed on you, yeah. right, when you're filming something, mm-hmm. and then the world is watching you from that dark room in, the, in a theater. What, what do, you, do you still feel when you're in front of people as the spider you're describing? Yeah. Are you still that girl inside? Or... Is she somewhere else when you when those lights go on
1: no unfortunately <laughs> or not <laughs> she's still there, and um I've started long time ago now about fifteen years ago um giving speeches to people about various things um mostly to women um uh about the environment or about uh you know uh you know sort of sisterhood and uh Various other things, because I was so uncomfortable, and I really didn't want to be. Because at heart, I'm a communicator, and and I was so um, it was so difficult for me. I felt so uncomfortable and terrified, and so I've done more and more of that. And um, I I welcome like the chance to talk to you uh, about these things I've really never talked about. Um, but that person, alas, is always there. Still, the main, the main character, I wish she weren't. I'd love to, you know, I'd, but anyway, you know, you are what you are. But, but as I say, you know, y- y- you
0: could have chosen a, a million paths to avoid that frequent yeah. feeling, but you chose to go into the storm. And I think that, that in itself is the ultimate act of courage for someone who is a, afraid of being embarrassed or shy. Yeah. It's like you're, you're daring it over and over and over and over and over again to be embarrassed. That's so true. But it's it's either masochistic or it's, it's something that's a drive that, yeah. that overcomes. I think it is a the,
1: challenge. And I think yeah. I've heard from so many actors, you know, when they're interviewed, they talk about how shy they were or yeah. are. Yeah. And it's just amazing to me that we, we have so many similarities, but yet we're in this business where we take huge risks in huge. front of other people. Yes, Turning yourself into someone else is, is uh, you do it absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you always get nervous before you're starting a new project, no matter how much preparation you've done, because you know in a couple of days, you're gonna have to turn yourself into someone else and you have to trust that process will happen as it's happened before. And um, so when people ask me to go skydiving, or any of these things, I go, you know what? I really don't need to do that. I take enough risks with what I'm doing. Uh,
0: Sigourney, I love to ed- end every interview by going to another New York writer, the, the poet, Walt Whitman, who is you know very uh, special to me too. And uh, this comes from Leaves of Grass and Song of Myself, where he writes, I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless, and filter and fibe your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged, missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere, waiting for you. And when I think about that passage and New York and people who 50 or 100 or 200 years from now come across your work or it's your maybe it's a descendant or It's someone who loves a a certain film and they want to know you and they want to commune with you and they want to uh, feel your spirit like you talk about madison avenue and and sensing your father where should they look for you in your new york to to commune with you and to know you
1: i think they have to come to the museum of the city of new york and listen to the (laughs) podcast (laughs) Um, but probably it would be the east river You know, when I see a tugboat, I relate to that tugboat. I feel like that's who we are. We're these small vessels, you know, padded, determined, pulling these enormous things behind us. And um, I always want to, like, spend an anniversary on a tugboat, you know, going around. But I've never dared to ask to go on one because it doesn't look like they have any room for anyone. but uh, I think if, if you're by the 59th Street Bridge and you're looking at all those currents, all the life in that area, uh, and all the boat life and the people on the esplanade, I would say that, that that's as close to home.
0: Your Hometown is a Kevin Burke production. For more, please visit our website at yourhometown.org where you can find our past episodes, and artwork that bring each guest's hometown to life. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast app and on social media, on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, please check out the show's New York City series page, including information on live events on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now, I'd like to thank the fantastic team that made this episode with me, Especially, our executive producer, Robert Kowich, art director, Nick Regg, editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, composer, performer, Sterling Steffen, and our researcher, Shaquilla Khan. Our branding and website design is by Tama Creative, and our social media team is led by Cure and Jessica Sembeer. A special thanks, too, to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York. I'm also profoundly grateful to the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and our other financial supporters for their commitment to this series. Until next time, thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.